Welcome to Island Ghost Radio. I'm Mike Taylor. I'm Erica Papino. And I'm Diane Constell. What did I throw you, did yeah, I throw you yeah. off? Um, you just like... I am completely thrown off now. I can't do the show. That's it. I'm leaving. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye. I'll take over. Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. <laughs> this is a nice room in here. <laughs> Sit down. Okay, I'm coming back. Coming back. Uh, yes, Island Coast Radio is the show all about the paranormal. Specifically, ghosts. ghosts. And ghouls. And robots. And robots. And ghostly robots. Where are we going to start our new show? It wasn't Ghost Hunters. What was it? Robot Hunters? Or yeah. And we were going to follow around and look for like trails of robots. Yeah, we were, we're going to do a parody show, Robot Hunters. Robot Hunters. And uh, have a bunch of investigators. Look, a bolt on the ground. This will definitely lead us to the trail of the robot. <laughs> Sounds horrible. I know. It was a terrible idea, but... <laughs> Were we also going to do a show called Dust Chasers? Yes. We never got to do that either. Yeah. That was going to be our feature film. Yeah. Yeah. Where we uh, go into a home as paranormal investigators with feather dusters. Mm-hmm. And, and dust busters. Yeah. And kick up the dust and then take photographs <laughs> and then claim the place was really active. Yeah. Suck up the ghost with your dust buster. And... That sounds dirty. <laughs> dust is dirty. Yes, it is. Well, tonight, who is our guest, Diane? Our guest tonight is British author Kenneth Gould. He's the author of Time and Time Again, My Family and Reincarnation, a very fascinating, interesting book. And he's going to be calling us from England. Yes, England. Our friend from across the pond. Ken is a very interesting, fascinating man. Yeah, the story actually has been going on since the 50s. He's been just working on it forever. He wow. is an 80-year-old gentleman? Yes, yes. he is. Mm-hmm. Ah, 80, okay. 80-ish. 80-ish. Yes, we don't know exactly, but he is around that age, and he's very interesting. So he's seen a lot of things in life, and we're going to get some of his insights into his family and ghosts and... Reincarnation. Reincarnation. That's right. And we had a poll up on our Island Ghost Radio website, and we're going to reveal the results right now. I kind of missed that music. Yeah, I did too. That was the reincarnation poll, right? Yes. And the question was, do you believe in reincarnation? Interesting. All right. Let's get to these results. 13% voted no. They do not believe in reincarnation. 21% said they don't know. They don't know what to believe. And with a whopping 66%. People said yes. Yes, they do believe in reincarnation. Instant milk. More than half of the people believe in reincarnation. Yeah, more than two-thirds. Do you remember reincarnation instant milk? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Reincarnation instant breakfast? Yeah. I remember that. It used to taste good. Do they still make it? It is good. Oh, God. I love reincarnation instant breakfast. Chocolate flavor, yummy. Yes, because there's nothing more appetizing than dried milk. (laughs) <laughs> well, it's not dry. It's actually got something in it when you drink it. Isn't that what old women produce? Dried milk? <laughs> That's oh. disgusting. Oh, my God. Uh. <laughs> that didn't deserve a rim shot. No, it wasn't didn't. Wasn't that funny? No, it wasn't. Um, so what did you vote? I'm starting this off. Normally, I'm usually the one who has last. Yeah, I but guess. you're just making bad jokes, so I figured I'd move it along. Okay. 
you're going to be the host tonight. You're going to navigate the show. Yeah, I'm navigating. Okay. I'm driving. Look out. Look out, everyone. Um, I voted I don't know because I don't know. I really don't know what to believe. The problem I have with a lot of people who have reincarnation stories is they always seem to come back as famous people. <laughs> That's not true. Or I should say like I was Cleopatra. Yeah, my mom had a friend who said she was Cleopatra. I should say See? they always come back as famous from their past life. <laughs> no, they come back as nobody, but they used to be famous. Right. <laughs> You're confusing us. I'm all screwed up. Diane, what, what did you what did you vote? I believe in reincarnation. That's it. That's all you have. <laughs> okay then. No, no, I do. I mean, I've I have friends who've told me stories. I was a person that I knew a while back that told me stories about his daughter remembering a past life, talking about her other family, and you know all the different things that went on. And I think we are reincarnated at some point because our energy just gets recycled. If we don't become a ghost, we just get thrown back in the mix. Hmm. Interesting theory. Erica, what about you? I, I voted I don't know as well. Not that I don't believe. I, I'm very open-minded, but I haven't had any experiences and nobody I know does, so I, I'm just not sure. Although I did see something very interesting on TV about a man who believes he was a soldier at Antietam. And I can't remember what show it was. Or I, even the I saw name. that too. It was very interesting. You went to the, the town and he met the family, right? Yeah, yeah. It was really cool. Hmm. How do we know that these people who believe they've been reincarnated, how do we know that there hasn't been a spirit that kind of like takes hold of them and they're actually just living the life of that dead person? Or maybe somehow possessed by that spirit? Yeah. Like it's possible. Or being guided by that spirit or maybe even just picking up residual energy. Yeah. That could be. That's why I voted. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. I'm open to the possibility. All right, so uh, we asked this poll question because of our guest tonight. He's going to share some stories of uh, instant carnation milk, right? Yes, yes, and Quaker instant oatmeal. Now yes. he's going to discuss his book and his family <laughs> and reincarnation. Instant Quaker oatmeal. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, let's not go down that road again. Wolford's uh, going to start sending us, like, you know, bills. Hate, hate mail? <laughs> yeah. Every time you play that clip, I get 10 cents. Hey, then Quaker better stop paying us for playing it. So check your blood sugar. Check it often. Call Liberty Medical. They can help you live a better life. Liberty Medical is going to start sending us test strips. <laughs> <laughs> We're not diabetics, but at least we'll be prepared. Just the test strips, not the monitors. Because <laughs> we're not on Medicare yet. Uh, all right. So that was an interesting poll. Um so stay tuned to islandghostradio.com for future polls. There's a guarantee there'll be another poll because Mike <laughs> wants to play that music. He needs a reason. It's true. It's all true. All right. You're listening to Island Ghost Radio. Oh, wait. There's one thing we forgot to bring up. What? The Shanley event. Yes, the Shanley event. We are having an event at the Shanley Hotel on April 17th, and you can join us. Just go to islandghostradio.com, click on the events section, and from there, you can pick your room, buy your room. Pick your room, pick your friends, pick your nose. Pick whatever you want, but just come on down and join us at the Shanley Hotel. We're going to do a ghostly presentation of things that we've captured in our group, Island Ghost Investigations. Evidence. We're going to do late night ghost hunting, and we're going to hang out. We're going to 
party with everyone and have a great time. Everyone that comes to these events usually has fun. Oh, it's a great place. It really is haunted, though. Oh, well, then we shouldn't go then. No, No, I think people worry they're going to pay to go someplace and, oh, it's not really haunted, but this place really is. Yeah. So come on down. Go to islandghostradio.com. Buy some tickets. Join us. It's going to be a lot of fun. We'll have refreshments. Refreshments, snacks, coffee. Right. For tickets, islandghostradio.com. Yes. And we'll be right back. With Ken Gould. Ken Gould. You're listening to Island Coast Radio. Boo! That was scary. I pooped myself. (laughs) Yes? Hi, I'm here for the New York Ghost Tour. Sorry, we're closed. But you can come back next week. Next week? Forget that. I'll just go check out another place. Trust me, there's no place half as interesting as ours, dear. That's so not true. What about the Shanley Hotel in Napanock? Once you've been to one haunted hotel, you've been to a mall. Not like this place. The Shanley Hotel dates back to 1845, and since then it's been a hot spot for paranormal activity. Mysterious music, smells, whistling... Doors opening, footsteps, almost everything you can imagine has been experienced at that hotel. It's open to the public? Absolutely. Sal and Cindy, the owners of the hotel, welcome people for regular stays or investigations, and their rates are beyond reasonable. They even offer workshops and in-house psychics. How did you learn about this place? By visiting www.shanleyhotel.com. You can get history, investigation info, and much more. Thanks, I think I will. Uh... Just don't tell any of our customers. Your secret's safe with me. It's not like anyone can hear us. Our guest tonight is Kenneth Gould, author of the book Time and Time Again, My Family and Reincarnation. In 1979, he found himself drawn to his father's mother, who had died in an asylum long before he was born. Ken's story came about after years of research and perseverance. It results in an amazing and fascinating book about his family, its history, and the relationships with their spirits. Welcome to the show, Ken. Hello. How are you? Uh, Ken, when you began writing your book, did you have any preconceived ideas about life after death? Oh, well, no, not not really. Uh, Not at all, if you mean, did I have a belief in it? In a way, perhaps the answer should be yes with reservations because I did have a hope, um, a hope that there might be something. It wasn't a general hope. I didn't think of it in general terms. It was limited solely to my father. In 1954, Dad died. He was 56 and I was 25. I'd always been very close to him and I missed him terribly. I felt I owed him so much and we had shared the same interests, abilities, and so on. He always had time for me, and amongst other things, he supported me in my sporting activities. And to my embarrassment, but not perhaps my complete dismay, I know he used to talk about me to our customers. He was proud of me, but no one could have been more proud of anyone than I was of him. But instead of continuing to feel sad, I used to talk to him out loud, 
showing him things I had made or written, uh, seeking his approval. What do you think of this, Dad? You know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I would look at something in my house or garden or stop what I was doing somewhere, and I would ask him if he could also see what I could see. I never heard any reply, but I, I continued to hope that he was there. Now, I actually do know now that he had been with me from almost the day he died, but I didn't find this out until um, 1989. That was 35 years later. The main medium upon whom I'd begun to rely from then, 1989 onwards, for information from my family, she was a lady called Evelyn Payne, quite well known over here. She had so fallen for my family, if, if that's the right term, right from the beginning, uh, that's my grandmother, dad, uncle, and so on, that she uniquely became able to converse with them when I wasn't with her. She said that in 30 years' experience, I was the only one for whom she could do this. Now, on quiet Sunday mornings, she would spend time with them, and she'd send me the taped conversations on cassettes. On one of them, not knowing incidentally that I'd just injured my ankle, she said, watch that ankle your father is saying to me. You, Ken, when you were playing football. Oh, <laughs> that's soccer, by the way, not American football. <laughs> did, did you injure your ankles or maybe just one ankle very badly? Because I can feel my ankle blowing up, strained or broken, that sort of thing. But it's not me, of course, it's you. Your father is showing me you as a very fair-haired young man, boyish, but more than a teenager. And he is telling me about the injury you had then. Well, the facts of the matter are that when I was 27, two years after Dad died, I had my soccer career cut short by a very bad ankle injury. Obviously, my father had been watching me play on that occasion, just as he used to come to watch me when he was alive. So... All those years I'd hoped he could see and hear me, he actually could. Now, something even more amazing, I think, is that I also know now that he knew what was going on around him from the actual time of his death. I don't know if it's the same where you are, but in the UK, it's more usual for a coffin to be taken from the funeral parlor to the cemetery than uh, from a, a private house. Now, in Dad's case, the coffin was at our house. This was unusual. On one tape sent to me, Evelyn Payne described the house and garden in perfect detail, the two ponds and waterfalls that Dad had created, uh, the row of apple trees with bluebells under them, um, a sundial he had also made in the middle of a, an immaculate, weed-free, manicured lawn, an amazing lawn, the paths made of red brick, which is not very common. Uh, it's not a very, excuse me, a very common look for paths. Uh, he described. She described the shape of the house itself. Even the, the fact that a separate garage had the same unusual shape and style of roof as the house. She said, Evelyn said that she was being taken on a wonderful tour of the place he loved so much. And then she added, "Your father is telling me that he left his house in a box." He is showing me the coffin being taken out through the front door. Uh, but uh, my granny Alice, incidentally, came to me in quite a different way. Ken, um, 
much of the book is based upon Granny Alice. Who exactly is Granny Alice? Well, she was Dad's uh, mother. I really didn't know much at all when Dad was alive, except one very important and significant thing. She died in a mental asylum. I knew that my father had grown up in an industrial area called Aston. It's in the city of Birmingham. Uh, that's our second city in, his, in what we call the Midlands. And it was in, oh, he grew up in lowly, impoverished conditions. Uh, I knew that he'd left school at the age of 12 to help to make ends meet for the family. He had left home to join the army at 16, saying he was 19. He was in the trenches in France at 17. He didn't refer to this as if he'd been a hero. I remember him telling me how scared he'd been. After all, he was only a boy. But I'm digressing. My grandmother, as I said, had died in an asylum. And Dad had used the phrase, uh, from a broken heart because of the death of her daughter in childbirth. But I knew precious little else. Um, he may not have wanted to talk about his past family because he had elevated himself to a far better life. And after all, having achieved this for his current family, that's my brothers and mine, he obviously wanted to leave the past behind. But I don't think he would have been ashamed of his family, far from it. But the past was over and, and done with, and he was, he was always happy to be in the present and to be planning better things for the future, our future. Then there was the matter of the asylum. Well, he wouldn't have wanted his sons to dwell on the possible implications of that, which was probably why I, too, didn't want to ask. I have to admit, to my shame, that I showed no interest in his mother while he was alive. But I have tried to make up for it since, and I've, I have learned a lot about her. Well, Ken, what made you think of her, and uh, then you felt the need to write about her? Well, that was in 1979. I, I was 50. Uh, I considered myself rather a square peg in a round hole at work, and I'd taken some work home from my office, which was fairly usual, but I, I didn't even look at it on that occasion. I spent hours in my study wondering why there were no photographs of Dad's family except those of himself and his two brothers in army uniform in the First World War, and I was thinking about what little I knew about the rest of them. I suppose trying to conjure up more, I suppose. Uh, and I remembered an incident when I was seven. I know that was my age because Dad had just bought his first motor car, and that was in 1936, and it was the first time we had visited Birmingham other than by train. We were staying with my uncle in his little house opposite some waste ground, and Dad lifted me up at the front window, and he indicated the parish church of Aston across the way. I remember his words exactly. The family are all over there. He obviously meant in the graveyard. And to this day, I can't think if he was telling me something. I, I remember only those few words, not a lengthy conversation, or whether he was asking me to do something. Not then, of course, I was only seven. But later, as many years afterwards, my mother told me that Dad and his brother, the one uncle I knew, had often wanted to find out more about their family, but they hadn't known where to begin. So that evening in my study, I decided that I'd do it for them as soon as I could. 
the more the idea took hold, the more the feeling grew that it was my grandmother who wanted me to do it. I knew she approved. She wanted me to write about her, and she was pleased I had decided to. In fact, I even began to think that it was she who was asking me to do it, and that it was she who wanted me to put, actually, put something right for her. A few days later, I began simple fact-finding at the registry. Well, I don't know, um, you must know this, but family history research in 1979, 1979 wasn't what it is today. Yeah. And in a way, I consider myself a bit of a pioneer because it's so popular now. Everyone's doing it much more easily, but that's another matter. And I began to write social as well as family history. Well, one of the first things to emerge was that my grandmother's entire family both sides had come over from Ireland generations earlier. I didn't know this. Although my father's family had come from a, a rural and agricultural area in England, he himself had grown up in that crowded city, dominated by Irish names. It was quite a surprise to me. Anyway, as time went on, I was satisfied with my research and my writing, but I knew that I hadn't yet put anything right for my grandmother. I knew she was asking me to. It was a strong feeling in my head. The feeling grew and grew, but so did the frustration. What did she want from me? I, I knew she wanted more than simply the history of names, dates, and so on. And I could only think that putting something right for her might have something to do with the asylum. I not only knew she wanted me to put her record straight, but these actual words, she wants me to be her pen and her saviour, came into my head and persisted. Well, Ken, you state that she appeared as a ghost. How did that come about? <laughs> well, that is, um, it's very difficult to explain, actually. Um, the family history side of things uh, led me to three cousins I didn't previously know I had. They're the sons of my father's other brother, from whom the uncle I knew and my father had together become estranged. I went up to Birmingham to meet them in the house of one of them and soon found that they knew nothing at all about our family, their family, a joint family before them. They'd been, uh, what, five, three, and a baby in arms, something like that, when their father had died, and their mother had even forbidden any mention of the, their father's name in the house. Since my dad's death, my mother told me that dad and my uncle hadn't wanted to return after the First World War in 1918 to the house where their father was living with another woman while their mother was in the asylum. But the father of these newly found cousins had. Whether that was the reason for the row, I don't know, but it, it made no difference to my cousins and me, particularly as they had reason to be grateful to my father. Because I learned that while they were growing up after the death of the father they never really knew, their mother had told them about an Uncle Len, that's my father, an Auntie Con, my mother, and a Ron and a Ken. They had thought it funny to talk about Len and Ken and Con and Ron, but the happiest thing they remember was that my father was, in their words, their father Christmas. Apparently, they'd grown up in poverty, far worse than Dad would have known, and my dad used to send them presents and a little money for their mother. But he had never talked about it to us. 
Again, I'm digressing, but you can see that I like to talk about him. <laughs> but nevertheless, to return to the discovery of his mother, my grandmother, as a ghost. I told them what family details I had so far found out and mentioned the graveyard. Incidentally, five years earlier, I had visited the very untidy surrounds to the church and I'd found no family gravestones. The vicar there, in actual fact, uh, told me that I probably wouldn't because as they were poor, uh, he was uh, uh, rather um, uh, careful in his words, but as they were poor, they probably didn't even have any stones. Well, I told the cousins uh, that I hadn't found any gravestones and one of them said, well, you wouldn't, particularly if you went now. It was dug up and re-landscaped four or five years ago. But I can tell you a ghost story about that place. A few years ago, my daughter had a sort of boyfriend, more a young man who was a friend. But, and he used to like to visit Aston, and he said that he'd been taking a short cut through the new graveyard, and he saw and heard a little old lady sitting on a stone bench, sobbing and crying and calling out, Annie, are you there, Annie? He insisted she was a ghost. On hearing Annie, I really began to take notice as my grandmother's daughter, whose death she had mourned so dreadfully, and who may or may not have been the cause of her needing to be in the asylum, was named Annie. Uh, you may remember that Dad had told me that my grandmother had died of a broken heart because she had never recovered from the death of her daughter. Mm. I know it's a common enough name, but I began to get messages and feelings. I also had found out in my early researches that my grandmother and Annie had been buried in the same grave that no longer existed, but I had no idea if that was significant. I asked my cousin if he knew how I could get hold of the witness, and he said, oh, you're out of luck. Uh, Linda saw him again the other day. She, she doesn't know an address or very much about him. Uh, and he told her the same story again and told her it was important and she mustn't forget it. He also said he was going abroad. But I do know his name, he added. It was Carson, Paul Carson. Carson, I shouted, that was our Annie's married name. I left as soon as I could after that as I needed to catch the late afternoon train to London. I'd arranged to meet my wife for dinner near her place of work. I spent the whole journey thinking and writing about what I'd been told, and more and more I had the feeling that the ghost and my grandmother were one and the same. That's fascinating. Um, then she actually made herself known, changed from being a ghost to becoming a, a communicator. Um, can you tell us more about that? <laughs> I really can't begin to explain how that was made possible. It'll probably always be a mystery, uh, but it's true nonetheless. All I know is what actually happened, so I'll tell you what happened. I met my wife in the restaurant, and with her was a personal friend of ours, my wife's head of department at the college at which they both worked, a man named Clive Kirby. We knew he was psychic, but as he had often uh, found some of his experiences unpleasant, we, we never discussed things like that with him, 
out of deference to his comfort, shall we say. He knew that I'd want to discuss with my wife the two or three days I'd spent in Birmingham as she had told him that one of the things I wanted to do there was to, to visit cousins I'd never met before. So he sort of withdrew mentally from us, but still remained at the table. I told my wife about my meeting and then told her that a little old lady had been seen and heard as a ghost in Aston's churchyard by someone one of them knew, and that the ghost was heard to call out, Annie, are you there, Annie? I mentioned no other names. I didn't even add that the witness had the same surname as my grandmother's daughter, but added, I have the weirdest feeling that the ghost was my grandmother calling out to her long-lost daughter. As I spoke the last words, I must have been looking down at the table because when I looked up at my wife's face, I could see she was terribly worried and concerned, not from what I'd said, but because of what she could see. She was looking at Clive. I looked at him, and his usually florid face was deathly white. He was sweating and looking extremely uncomfortable. My wife asked if he was okay and he held up his hand as if to shrug it off and he said your grandmother's name was Alice wasn't it? He didn't ask, he knew. He went on, her husband's name was George and I can see tin, green glass and straps. I was flabbergasted as you can imagine but I managed to say well Clive you've got the names of my grandmother and grandfather and I'm pretty sure Tin is a reference to the metals my grandfather worked with because he was a smith at a forge in a factory. But I don't know anything about green glass and straps. He again held up his hand and he said, there's more. Is there a Bess, Bessie or Gus, Gussie around in your family? Because your grandmother is really angry with this woman. She's going on and on about her, and she says she wants you to put something right for her. I didn't tell him that I'd already come to the same conclusion that she needed this help from me, as I didn't want to break his concentration, and, of course, I might have sounded as if I was upstaging. It was more important to concentrate on this woman, who was the cause of grandmother's anger, and perhaps the reason for her problem Maybe it was she who caused uh, my grandmother to be in the asylum. But unfortunately, nothing more was forthcoming. Uh, Clive eventually regained his composure. Somehow we managed to return to something like normal conversation. We finished our meal and we made our separate ways home. Now at home, I felt more certain than ever that my grandmother wanted me to visit the asylum which was still a mental hospital. So I returned to Birmingham as soon as I could, and they allowed me to look around. Everywhere in the passages, in the petitions, there were panes of green glass. And in the dining room, which she would have seen every day, there was more green glass everywhere. Grandmother had obviously sent me up there to find out for myself and to start me on my journey to put something right for her. I didn't like to think about the straps so I didn't ask but I still didn't know who Bessie Gussie was I knew it was one woman Clive had said so when he said how angry my grandmother was with 
this woman. And I realized that the names Bessie, Gussie together would have been Elizabeth Augusta. That's E.A., I thought. Where had I seen E.A. before? My wife reckons I've got some sort of a photographic memory. Perhaps I have, because I suddenly remembered. On my grandfather's death certificate, which I had last seen five years before when beginning the family history research, I recalled that the informant concerning his death had been E.A. Lavender. I further tracked this down and found that the woman my grandfather was living with was indeed named Elizabeth Augusta. The authorities in Birmingham then sent me written details of the admission to the asylum of, uh, of Granny in 1917, and two of the details given were that bruises were noted on her arms and body. Uh, she was only 4 feet 11 inches, by the way, and that and that with her husband when she was delivered to that place it was a female friend who gave much of the information about my grandmother's supposed madness it was obviously Bessie Gussie and just as obvious that she and my grandmother's husband no longer my grandfather in my head as you can imagine had together put my granny away for their own convenience an opinion voiced by someone at the hospital when the copy of the report was being prepared was that as my grandmother was quarrelsome, those words were mentioned in the admission details, she would almost certainly have been strapped down in a wheelchair by her wrists and ankles. So I now had confirmation of everything that my friend Clive Kirby had told me. It was a fantastic introduction to messages from the spirit world. And yet, it was only made possible by a personal friend, not a professional medium. Hmm. Well, what took you to see professional mediums? Uh, well, you might think that it was actually immediately to find out more um, about my grandmother, but it didn't come about in exactly that way. I'll mention it in, in, in the way that it did, because... It's important, I think, that we should also uh, realize that in the spirit world, there can be messengers. Now, it was in 1989, five years after Granny Alice had made herself known and after I'd received confirmation of those sad details when she was put away, and 10 years after I had first begun to think about her. My wife and I had moved to Spain, although she still had to fulfill some part-time duties at the college. They didn't want her to leave, and they were delaying her retirement, I believe. But anyway, although she had nothing to do with hiring and firing, a young lady who wanted a job was wrongly sent to her. My wife told her that she wasn't the person to see and tried to direct her to another office, but the young lady didn't seem as if she wanted to go. She suddenly mentioned me and told my wife that a certain book would be of benefit to me. In his present state of health and because of what he is doing, she added. Now, I had not entered into the conversation before, and there was no way that this young person could have known that a couple of years earlier, I'd been depressed for some months and I'd suffered a nervous breakdown at work. That was the reason I'd retired early 
and why we had gone abroad to get away from London. My wife bought the book, and she brought it down to Spain with her. It was written by a medium, not one I ever saw, incidentally, although I have seen quite a few. And in the back was written, The Spiritualist Association of Great Britain, 33 Belgrave Square, London. And my wife suggested to me that when I was next in England, I should go there. Well, as the book contained a lot about the healing powers of mediums, I remember that I said, you don't think I need that sort of help, do you? I'm completely better now, aren't I? Not for that reason, she said, but so as to learn something more about your grandmother and carry on what Clive has started. How did the first conversation with a professional go? Well, I, I flew to England specially and made an appointment to see a medium at the association's headquarters for the following day. But the receptionist told me that that evening there would be an experimental demonstration in um, psychometry, which I might find interesting. I didn't know what that meant. But I was soon to find out as I joined the gathering in a packed hall and the medium who explained she'd never done it before was so impressive at genuinely telling people about themselves and their relatives simply by handling a wallet, a ring or a watch, that sort of thing, that I had to change my daytime appointment in her favor, even though I'd have to wait a few more days before I could see her. It was, of course, Evelyn Payne. On the morning of the appointment, I climbed into the space in my roof area that I'd turned into a study and hobby room. Uh, my wife and I had moved, uh, incidentally, from the first house where I had the more conventional study, the one where my grandmother had so entered my thoughts ten years before. And I looked at the books I had amassed, the books that I had written containing all uh, that I'd uh, written so far about the family and at a large brown envelope or packet that was sitting next to them. I knew that in it there were dozens of pieces of paper, certificates, letters, notes, drafts, and so on, and I really told myself off for not yet having included them in the next volume awaiting them. One letter I remembered was the letter I'd received four or five years before from the mental hospital about my grandmother's admission. I told myself I'd take the papers down to Spain and work on them again straight away. Oh yes, <laughs> I forgot. When I made the appointment, I gave it a different name. Not that I thought mine might give anything away about where I was born or where I lived, but I was determined from the word go that I would be less, less than cooperative and I would only listen without replying, or at most give a shake uh, of the head or a nod or a one-syllable answer. The session was tape-recorded, so I know I was successful. I gave no information at all. Evelyn Payne took my hand and fingered uh, a signet ring, and she then said, this is an interesting ring, but there's nothing there for us. This isn't your family. Now, that was a good start, as although the ring had an attractive family crest on it, it wasn't my family and was simply a ring I had bought because I liked it. 
She then said that she knew that my family had Irish connections. It was getting better by the minute, as I'm sure I don't sound Irish, and if there's a typical Irish look, I don't think I look Irish either. But although what I next said was true, it was not meant to be helpful. In fact, it was meant to be downright devious. Because I had also started my mother's family history and had discovered uh, that centuries before someone had gone to Ireland and apparently stayed, or had he, I said something to that effect. No, she said, it's more recent, and it isn't your mother's family, it's your father's. I have a lady here in a Victorian dress, and she's showing me a photograph of her in an oval shape, because she says she knows you don't have any photographs of her. It's your father's mother, and she is saying she wants you to write a book. She wants you to put something right for her. I couldn't help it. I had to say, or rather gulp, but I have written a book, meaning the family books, of course, not the book uh, time and time again. I had no idea then that I was going to uh, write a book for publication, just the family books. I have written a book, I said. Yes, she said, but your grandmother is saying that it isn't finished. She wants you to be her pen and her savior. Those words, again, the same words I had thought when I was alone in my study ten years earlier, the night I first began thinking about her. She went on, you have to return to her city, and now that you've retired early, you have the time to carry on your writing. Now, note that it was her city, not mine, and she even knew I had retired early, as well as the fact that I had no photographs of her. Then Evelyn said, she is saying that when you get home, go into the roof of your house and look in a large brown packet of papers. The third piece of paper is the letter you need to get you started again. When the short session was over, I couldn't wait to get home. And when I did, I looked in the packet and the third piece of paper, not the second, not the 22nd, but the third was the letter which told me for sure that my grandmother, although admittedly suffering from a bad memory, was not mad, that she had been abused by her husband and was being railed against by a very talkative woman friend. The worst they could together say about my grandmother was that she lost her way in the streets and had attacked her husband because she said he was bad to her and went off with other women. Well, if he hadn't been bad to her, how did the officials and doctors who admitted her think she got the bruises? Well, I believe this was followed by years of experience with Evelyn Plain and other mediums at the Spiritualist Association of Great Britain. Oh, yes, uh, many years. From then in... 1989, right up to the present day, although the book itself reaches its climax in 2002. If I would go to a medium at the association tomorrow, I would hear from all sorts of family members about what I've done in the past, what I'm doing now, what my wife and I are discussing, even what I am thinking. I, <laughs> I'd like to give you an example of this later. I hope I've got time. Anyway, Evelyn Payne was so impressed by my grandmother that she insisted I visit her again immediately on a private, non-paying basis. 
your grandmother has a lot more to say. I've never felt quite like this before so early, she said. My husband and I rent a small house in London when I'm doing my work here. You must come. Bring a 90-minute cassette. It will be a long session. It was. Granny Alice described her daughter's death in childbirth. The babe spilled out of her, she said. Her husband's cruelty to her, how she had been hit in the stomach with his fist repeatedly. Did I mention that she was only 4 feet 11 inches, by the way? That, yes. Yeah. I think it's very significant when you think about a stomach in a fist. Um, a fist in a stomach, I beg your pardon, I get so upset thinking about my grandmother, I get mixed up sometimes. And she described the asylum itself. It was a strange place he took me to, to say my final goodbye, but he was determined to be rid of me, were her words. It was harrowing, but so rewarding. An uninterrupted monologue for the full hour and a half. Evelyn and I were both drained at the end, and all I had done was listen. I can tell you that not a day goes by that I don't feel emotional about my poor little grandmother and her suffering. Anyway, the number of recorded sessions grew, especially as we moved back to England, but I should mention that it wasn't long before my father introduced himself, as did his brother, my dear uncle. Dad came in this way. Evelyn said, your father is with us now, standing next to your little grandmother, and he wishes you not to leave him out. Not that I could ever have done that. <laughs> now he's standing behind you. Uh, you've turned into a little fair-haired boy of about 12 or 13, and he is very proud of you. He is placing around your neck, over your shoulders, a square silk scarf, and it's red, black, and silver. It's his way of identifying himself to you so you will know who he is. I can tell you that he is very, very proud of you. Now, I hope that what I'm going to say next doesn't sound big-headed, but I have to confirm what Evelyn had just told me. The facts of the matter are that when I was at a school where we wore a red and black blazer, um, I'm not sure. Do you have the word blazer? In the UK, it's another word for a school uniform jacket. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, we do. Ah, right. <laughs> and at this school, we wore a red and black blazer and a red and black tie. I was continually being put up into the next class each year, or even every half year, until at the age of nearly 13, I was in the top class of 16 and near 17-year-olds. I said it might sound big-headed, but I, I, it, it, it happens to be a fact. Also, although I was quite small, I was in the school first 11 teams for soccer, cricket, and uh, hockey. That's uh, field hockey, by the way. And actually won something known as colors, which meant I was allowed to wear, in addition, or instead of the black and red tie, I was allowed to wear a black, red, and silver tie and a black, red, and silver silk scarf. I can't think of a better way for Dad to enter my life again than in a shared moment such as that, with him remembering something that happened but which I can't ever remember we had spoken about. 
My uncle also came for the first time with a shared memory. He described me sitting next to his pond, drawing on the, uh, the stone surround with a piece of chalk while he tap-danced around me. He then showed Evelyn the two of us while he produced a ping-pong ball from behind my ear. Dad had always called him the dancing magician. Uncle Walter also described in detail how he had been working at night as an electrician in the roof of a cinema during an air raid in the Second World War, 1940-41, something like that. And the building had a direct hit by a bomb, and he had been sent crashing to the ground 40 or 50 feet, hanging onto a chandelier. He was unhurt, and I remember... And just as importantly, he would have remembered that he had told me the same story in exactly the same words when we were too seldom together in his own lifetime. It was not only the number of sessions that grew, but also the other tape-recorded conversations Evelyn had with my family. Do you remember I mentioned the Sunday morning she spent with them without my being there with her? Mm -hmm. oh, earlier, I mentioned that they know my thoughts. Let me tell you of one occasion. I'd been on one of my visits to England to see my mother, whom we later needed to look after, and that's why we eventually returned. And I was on my way to London. I'd just missed a train, and I could see it disappearing in the distance. There were 10 or 15 minutes to wait, and not being a person to sit still, I wandered the length of the station platform. The station was being decorated, but there was no one around. I noticed that every few feet there were rectangles on the wall intended for advertising posters, but the panels had been scrubbed clean by the decorators and then had been drawn upon with chalk in the style of um, Egyptian hieroglyphics or Chinese lettering. And as I walked and looked, I thought, I don't like graffiti, but if we have to have it, I wish it was all like this. This is good art. I returned to Spain with a new tape cassette from Evelyn. It had later arrived just before I left our English home. And together, my wife and I listened to it. One of the many dozens of astounding revelations of insights into my life and the last few days I had spent in England was, oh boy, someone's up to date. Glorified graffiti. I've just had those two words thrown at me, Ken. It's your father, and he knows you've been somewhere where you've seen some graffiti that you considered good art. And I know that he's picked up on your thoughts. So now, what do you think happens to us after we die? Uh, for such as how does communication take place, that sort of thing. Well, I have my own ideas they may not be everyone's they're not something I've read except the dictionary definitions but I've come to the conclusion that the brain and the mind are not one and the same we all know what a brain does for us and we know that it is matter mass and is tangible because it's an organ of the body and like all the other organs is part of us so that when we die it dies with us when we are buried, it's buried with us. When we're cremated, it's turned to ashes and burnt with us. But let us consider the mind, or rather the tricks of the mind, which takes me to dreams. Most of us, perhaps 
all of us dream at night, and some of us, some of us often have waking thoughts by day that don't seem to come from the brain. I know I do. Flashes of something that are not in any way connected with what else is going on around me enter my thoughts by day and just as suddenly leave. Then there are nightmares. Would we really want our brains to be responsible for experiences like that? So... If our dreams and nightmares by night and sudden impulses of thought by day are not the actions of the brain, how do they come? Dictionaries tell us that whereas the brain is matter, as I've just mentioned, the mind is defined as immaterial, having no mass, the soul as distinct from the body. The soul is defined similarly as having no matter. It is immaterial and spiritual. The spirit is defined in exactly the same way. So the mind, the soul, and the spirit would seem to be one and the same, an, an intangible thing that has no substance. Now, we know that it can roam free when we are alive, and I know now that it can roam free from us when we are dead. Otherwise, my grandmother, father, uncle, and dozens of others would not have been seen and heard and would not, would not have been brought to me in such detail. But how exactly are they seen and heard? Well, for me, it has been through those few people gifted enough to be able to do so. But Evelyn told me that we all have clairvoyance and clairaudience in us to varying degrees. It's just that most people have lost the knack they were born with, especially because of the fast and complicated lives we lead. She pointed out also that children do have imaginary friends. Now, might not these be kindly guiding spirits that only children can see and hear until they grow into adolescence and adulthood? Isn't that possibly why... Um, youngsters have some sort of uh, clairvoyance and later on we've lost it mm -hmm. but of course that is another subject I've, I've gone too far there I think <laughs> and that's another subject well Ken finally how can you justify your claim that you may have proven reincarnation well I'm glad you've asked that because I can hear our listeners saying he has told us about his grandmother being seen and heard as a ghost and he's proved that spirits communicate with us and watch us from another unseen world above and around us. Well, unseen by most of us, of course, but obviously not by all. But where does reincarnation come in? Well, I have to say that I can't unequivocally state that I've proved it to everyone's satisfaction. That is why in the book's introduction, I wrote that I show almost to the point of certainty that reincarnation exists. I am myself certain, and on second thoughts, I think I may have been too hesitant in understating my claim. Incidentally, in one of my grandmother's conversations with Evelyn Payne, in which she thanked me for what I had done for her, she made mention of the fact that she would not return to enjoy a better life here until, until I myself had passed on. I find that very significant, but not, I hasten to add the proof I am referring to, significant because every word of many thousands spoken by Evelyn has been truthful and accurate, even 
apparently silly things like Granny Alice agreeing with my wife that a beard I'd grown didn't suit me, describing how on one morning before I'd left the house to visit evening at the association, I'd changed my shirt and tie two or three times before being happy with my dress that day. Dozens, even hundreds of similar insights into my life um, are uh, on my tape recordings and in my book, incidentally. So there is no way that reference to grandmother's reincarnation is a remark made by Evelyn Payne herself. It has to be a genuine statement made by my grandmother. But it's the conversation I have in the last few pages that actually constitute the proof for me. However, if I were to divulge the connection that the person to whom I talk at the end has with someone who appears at an early stage in my book, giving the identities to you all of the persons involved, I would also be giving away the ending of my book. <laughs> Naturally, I would rather the reader finds out personally and then makes up his or her own mind. I believe that the identities then disclosed and how I managed to bring them together in the narrative will actually convince all but the most hardened skeptic that reincarnation occurred between those two related members in my family's true story. I myself can come to only one conclusion. The book is Time and Time Again, My Family and Reincarnation by Kenneth N. Gould. And if you'd like to pick up this book, you can go to healingsofalantis.com. Kenneth, we thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me.